We're in our Bible lists, and this is out of Harold Wilmington's uh, Bible lists that he compiled and just various topics, and we've been just kind of going down through some of those. And so tonight we're going to look at famines in the Bible, famines. And I was surprised that there are actually quite a few famines that are mentioned. Uh, And famine is essentially uh, a time of um, widespread lack of food, in a, in a particular, sometimes in a geographic land uh, specific to a, a certain time. And it could be various reasons famines occur. Um, in more modern times, we're, especially here in the West, not really uh, accustomed to famines. But in previous generations, they were sort of routine. And there were various times that people really had hard times, including crops failing and those kind of things. And um, today, if for, for instance, our crops failed up here, I hope they don't, but you know, if they did, uh, it might be a little more expensive to get food, but we have transportation can bring food in and that kind of stuff. And so in many ways, the modern conveniences of uh, transportation and those things in our life have alleviated some of that, but there's still famines that go on in our world and in the process, often displacing people. And we see that throughout scripture, how God used famines And he used them in various circumstances, sometimes prompting people to move, sometimes prompting them to repent of their sin. Sometimes famines were associated in Israel directly with their sin, because remember, God had, in his covenants, promised them that he would bless them so long as they obeyed him and followed him. And if they chose not to, he would curse them, and he would allow uh, the enemy to come in, and sometimes that was the case. And Famines can occur that way, and in particular with Israel. And I think that principle very much is uh, the case with with believers, not just Israel, that if you want to live in sin and remain in sin, it will affect what goes on around you and often affect even uh, perhaps the the, the whole land you live in, you know, in that way. Just as righteousness prospers countries, unrighteousness will cause a dearth of uh, famine in various ways it might not be just with food so those are some things to to set this up anyways i thought we'd look at the famines recorded in the bible and we're going to go down through uh let me go to the right notes here uh the first one mentioned is in genesis chapter 12 and some of these will be familiar to you and uh, i'll make a few comments on each and if you have something you want to interject feel free to do so i always say that this is um I know I do the preparing and that kind of stuff, but sometimes you guys have some real good things you need to share, and I'd love to hear it. So the first one is Genesis chapter 12 and verse 7, and it says this, Then the Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your descendants I will give this land. And there he built an altar to the Lord who had appeared to him. And he moved from there to the mountain east of Bethel, and he pitched his tent with Bethel on the west and Ai on the east. There he built an altar to the Lord and called him the name of the Lord. So Abram journeyed, going on still toward the south. Now there was a famine in the land, and Abram went down to Egypt to dwell there, for the famine was severe in the land. Lord, we are grateful for your word, and we again open up the book tonight and read this record of a time in Abram's life when there was famine. And Lord, I thank you for that. Thank you for the divine appointments you, you stir and cause and control in all our lives. And Lord, there are times we, we just live in times of leanness and times of prosperity. 
And yet, Lord, you are the same. You are God. You want our attention. You want our worship. And we thank you for that. You are worthy. In Jesus' name, amen. So this is the first famine mentioned in the Bible, and it's a direct result, really, of the, the land in which Abram was in. And it provoked, it's interesting because I read purposely went back a little bit in a few verses before this, and we find in Genesis chapter 12, verse 1, God calling Abram out of Ur of the Chaldees, he promised them that he would show him a land that he would inherit, and he would make him a great nation. And you find that as Abram goes out, and it seems like Abram is a man of great faith because he builds these altars and calls on the name of the Lord and, and does that, and, and you would assume that that is you know, something that is you know, a positive thing in his life. And then a famine hits, and right after the famine hits, he goes down to Egypt. It was the place that God didn't, and by the way, God didn't tell him to go to Egypt in that, but instead I believe God would have provided very well for Abram in the land of Canaan had he stayed there. Nevertheless, he goes down into Egypt, and you know the story with that. And, and by the way, God uses things. He even uses our times when we wander from him. And, and it's hard to say that Abram was necessarily wandering from. I think he was doing what he thought was right. He, know, he knew Egypt was a place where they could find bread, and he would go down there. And, of course, he and Sarah, Sarai, his wife, Go down there, and you remember he's caught up in a lie, isn't he? He says, um, she's a beautiful woman, and the men there down in Egypt are going to want her. And so he didn't want to get killed and then have them take her. So he decides to have this, you know, basically lie that he and Sarai would come up with that she was his sister. Um, now, that didn't really help the situation of her not getting taken by these men, but it did caused great, almost great disaster in Egypt because in a time where he went away from God and wasn't acting in accordance to really good spiritual discernment, he goes and propagates a lie and does that. And God reveals it. Thankfully, nobody's killed and eventually gets food, all that, but goes back to the land where he should have been. And you know, the, you come down to Genesis chapter 16 and you find out in that chapter that when Abraham, Abram left uh, Egypt, he came out with more than just some bread. Uh, anybody know what else he came out with? It's a person, she. Yeah, Hagar. She was an Egyptian servant. And she came out uh, with them. And they had, when they were down there, apparently brought back an Egyptian to help them out. And we know the story from that, how God, or how Abraham, first of all, um, uh, in Sarah, actually Sarah is the one that suggested it, they hadn't had an heir yet, and they decided they were going to get ahead of God's promise and take matters into their own hand. And so using, the, it was then the law of the land under the Hammurabi Code, they were allowed to go to a servant of the household, a male uh, you know, husband or whatever, and he could have a child with one of the servants and then adopt that child as his own with what would have been his own and with his wife being her own. And I think that's what they were operating under the world's wisdom and the world's law. And by the way, it wasn't God's plan, was it? And they have Ishmael. And of course, that causes great division. Ishmael and Hagar eventually uh, taken, you know, thrust out of the home. And we know the encounter there. And out of Ishmael's line comes the Arab people. And so God blessed Abram 
with a people that came from Ishmael, even though he was not the child of promise. And so a famine, as it first appears in Scripture, uh, was a time of testing. And I would just say this, that Abram didn't pass that test really the way he should. Um, Later on, God would use it, and God would use Abram in spite of his poor decisions and his sin, uh, and he would do that. Anyways, that's the first famine. Um, The second famine is in the next generation. And by the way, I don't think many generations throughout the earth have have not had something arise in their life that causes famine or some displacement that goes on. Um, Probably in my generation, we're somewhat of an exception here, at least in America. Uh, But my grandmother, of course, and my grandparents uh, went through the Great Depression. Uh, My grandmother on my mom's side uh, often talked about that, if you asked her anyways, and it was a very hard time. And they, um, it, was, it was during that time that her father left her mother. He just took off. And uh, later on, they found out he had married another woman, never even uh, had divorced her or anything. He just married another woman, had another family, all of that. And she remembered that it was a very hard time in the Depression with a, a hand-to-mouth existence. And they literally uh, had many days where they had no food at all. And so I'm not... I'm not naive to say I couldn't be removed from that very far, you know, neither could you. But in the next generation, we come to Isaac, and in verse 20 of chapter 26, verse 1, it says, There was a famine in the land, and beside the first famine, that was in the days of Abraham. So this is a different one. And Isaac went to Abimelech, king of the Philistines, in Gerar. And you know the story there, and almost reproduces itself exactly except that it doesn't occur in Egypt it occurs in in uh, the territory of the Philistines um, Isaac goes there and his Rebecca and she's beautiful and he says the same thing the men are going to want you and they're going to kill me basically so they devise the same lie and again that comes up and eventually is discovered and Abimelech is horrified because he apparently had better spiritual discernment than Isaac and he realizes that had they taken another man's wife, that it would have brought short judgment upon them. And I, sometimes believers make very poor choices when they're backslidden, or at least I would say not trusting the Lord in faith, which is a form of backsliding, isn't it? Um, he was not trusting the Lord to take care of him in the place he was. Now, the Lord did instruct him to dwell in Gerar. And he did. And again, eventually, he, the Lord blessed Isaac so much that the people wanted him out because he was stronger than they were. And so, again, God's hand of blessing was upon Isaac, even in a time of famine. And we see that, again, how the Lord provides for his people. So we see that in uh, Genesis 26. The next famine is Genesis 41. And we know this story. It's the story of Joseph. And Joseph has been sold into slavery by his brothers. He ends up down in Egypt as a slave, then as a prisoner later on. He's later delivered out of a prison to go and speak to Pharaoh because, remember, someone knew he was a man who could interpret dreams, and Pharaoh had had this really weird dream. And, and uh, it was a dream of, of cows coming up out of the Nile, and there were healthy cows, seven of them, and then there were seven that were sickly. And nobody knew what it was, what, what that was. And so Pharaoh eventually finds out about Joseph. Joseph goes before him. He, dis, he tells him the seven healthy cows are seven years of plenty. And the seven unhealthy cows, sickly cows, 
our seven years of famine which are to follow. And Pharaoh puts Joseph in charge of the kingdom, essentially, in charge of, of the administration of the kingdom. And Joseph ends up delivering the Egyptians in a time where for seven years he puts grain aside because it was a time of great prosperity. And then when it came to the lean years, he had that extra grain to give out. And it was during that time that his brethren come down to Egypt from the land of Canaan in a time of famine because the famine was widespread. And they come down there seeking bread. And it's there, their rejected brother is their savior. Just like the story of Jesus, right? You know, those who rejected Jesus now have cut, will eventually come to him, bow before him. And by the way, um, he's their savior, you know, and looking at that. I'll read on. It says, in the seven years of famine began to come, as Joseph had said. The famine was in all lands, but in all the lands of Egypt there was bread. So when all the land of Egypt was famished, the people cried to Pharaoh for bread. And then Pharaoh said to the Egyptians, go to Joseph. Whatever he says to you, do. The famine was over all the face of the earth. And Joseph opened all the storehouses and sold to the Egyptians. And the famine became severe in the land of Egypt. So all the countries came to Joseph in Egypt to buy grain. Because the famine was severe in all lands. And that is the story, again, of redemption. And how God would save his people through, well, again, his divine act of, of preserving, right? When you think about that, what Joseph later says of his own people, what you meant for evil, God meant for good. And isn't that great that God can take the evil things that man do, that men do, and he still can bring good out of those things. And that's emphasized Romans 8.28, right? He works all things together for good, even the bad things, if we'll let him, right? And I'm glad for that. I said he'll still do it. It's if we recognize it, we'll understand it, you know, more. So that's that famine uh, that goes on. And again, more could be said about that. But again, um, how God moved people around and eventually would bring a great nation out of Egypt. They had gone down for deliverance in a time of famine and stayed there for 400 years, right? And then had to go back in. The next famine occurs... In the time of the judges, and that's in the book of Ruth. In the book of Ruth, and it says in verse 1 of chapter 1, Now it came to pass in the days when the judges ruled. Now, remember that that was a 400-year, 350 to 400-year period. If you include Samuel in that, it's about 400 years, because uh, he's really the last judge. And you remember... Ruth marries a man named Boaz, and Boaz's mother is who? Rahab. Where does she show up? In Jericho, in Joshua, right? So there's only a, a small, like a, one generation from Rahab and Joshua into the book of Judges. And so early on in the, what we call the historical book of Judges is probably when Ruth takes place. And there's a famine. And we know that famines often were a direct result of people in Israel, anyways, uh, disobeying God. Because God told them, if you'll obey me, I'll bless you. If you don't, I will have these very things happen. You know, the enemy will come in, um, and famines will come, pestilences, those kind of things, so to provoke them back. 
So early on, this is probably one of those early cycles of, um, uh, of disobedience. And it's during that time, look what it says, there was a famine in the land, and a certain man of Bethlehem, Judah, went to dwell in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife, Naomi, and the names of his two sons were Malon, Kilion, Ephrathites of Bethlehem, Judah. And they went to the country of Moab and remained there. And we know the story, right? Uh, Elimelech dies, and Naomi's widowed with her, she's there with her two sons, and the two sons had married Moabite women, Moabite women uh, Orpah and Ruth. And we know that um, from the text also that the two sons died. And it was a period of about 10 years that they were there in total. Naomi was there in Moab. Um, we went through the book of Ruth, and you remember the phrase that appears in the Psalms where it says, Moab is my wash pot, right? In other words, it was a, a place that God condemned. And it's the place on the other side of Jordan. And it was there that this man from Bethlehem goes and takes his family. And it was a temporary move in a time of famine. It ended up being a permanent move for him and his two sons. And the story, the beautiful story of Ruth is that this Moabite woman um, attaches herself in love to her mother-in-law, Naomi, and to Naomi's God, more importantly, Naomi's God, the Lord, and goes back to Israel and is grafted in by grace into Israel marries into the family of Boaz, and then we know the story from there. Boaz and, uh, uh, and Ruth marry. They have a son, Obed. Obed has a son named Jesse. Jesse has a bunch of sons, one of them being David. Thank the Lord for a famine, you know? I mean, the way God always works this stuff out in spite of bad decisions in the front of it. Isn't it good that he's good like that? Uh, anyways, we'll move on here for, for time. Um, the next one is in David's life, and that's in 2 Samuel 21. And it says, Now there was a famine in the days of David for three years. That's quite a famine. Year after year, and David inquired of the Lord, and the Lord answered. Now, it's interesting kind of wording on this. David, I think year after year, went and inquired about this famine and didn't get an answer. And he comes to this uh, third year of famine, and the Lord finally answers and says, It is because of Saul and his bloodthirsty house, because he killed the Gibeonites. And if you go back in the history of Saul the king, he had done that. He had gone out and killed the Gibeonites, even though way back in the time of Joshua, you remember what the Gibeonites did? What did they do? Right, they, they, weren't, they were members of the land, and they were supposed to be driven out and, or, or killed if they didn't go. And instead, they tricked Joshua into making a covenant with them. And he made a covenant. And though they did it in trickery, Joshua honored that covenant as an oath to the Lord. And the Gibeonites were to be protected by Israel from there on. They weren't to be brought into the membership of Israel, except through the, the law would allow it, I guess, if somebody converted to Judaism. But they were to be servants in the house of the Lord and bringing in wood and that kind of thing. So here later on, Saul breaks that vow. And he has some of the Gibeonites killed in a vengeful thing. 
and uh, in, in this sort of guise of purifying the land. And God remembers that. And we're back to vows. It's important, right? Vows are important. And all of a sudden, there's a famine in the land. Finally, David gets the answer. It's because Saul was vengeful. And we know a little bit more about that. And later, David goes. He goes to the Gibeonites, and, and he, he wants to recompense, to atone for this. And, and the Gibeonites actually show mercy. They could have, could have probably said, hey, we want vengeance upon the house of Saul further. You know, is Mephibosheth was still alive, and other, but, but they don't. And again, David is, um, is used to really bring the famine to an end by, by getting things right. Um, so I think about that, you know, how God uses people in the time of famine. The next one, let's see here. We've got Elijah in his time, um, and that's in 1 Kings 17. This is a divided kingdom. Uh, that time, and you have Israel to the north and Judah to the south, Judea, and you have those two kingdoms. And uh, in the north, you have a lot of bad kings. And in this time, you have uh, Ahab and Jezebel who are reigning there, and there's a famine because of their sin. They brought back the worship of Baal. Chapter 17, verse 1, Elijah the Tishbite of the inhabitants of Gilead said to Ahab, As the Lord God of Israel lives before whom I stand, there shall not be dew nor rain these years except at my word. And that's exactly what takes place. Um, and then if you go to that, I don't have all the verses written out, but um, go to First Kings 17. Because in that whole section... Uh, there, there's a it's, it, well, a lot of a lot of different things, but an amazing story because you have God providing for Elijah in a time of famine. He uses remember the ravens. I always find that sort of ironic that God would use an unclean bird because that's what they were to feed the prophet. Um, again, God taking the things that we wouldn't choose to really confound the mighty. Right, uh, verse. Two, It says, Then the word of the Lord came to him, saying, Get away from here and turn eastward and hide by the brook Cherith, which flows into the Jordan, and it will be that you shall drink from the brook, and I have commanded the ravens to feed you there. Aren't you glad God commands the fowls of the air? He can do that. If God so chose to take care of you in a way like that, he could do it, couldn't he? He certainly could. Um, and he could he could pr- provide by having an animal come and show up and say, here I am, either with food or maybe their food. I don't know, but that's the way God is. Um, you read of that, and he he's there for a while, then eventually no rain in the land, there's a big famine going on, and the brook dries up. You can't last too long without water. And so the word of the Lord comes to him, verse 8, saying, Arise, go to Zarephath, which belongs to Sidon, and dwell there. See, I have commanded a widow there to provide for you. It goes from birds, the ravens, to a widow. And we find out she and her son are on their last meal and they're getting ready to die. And God uses the prophet, and really it's God using himself through the prophet, to provide for Elijah and provide for the widow and her son. And again, 
God is faithful in a time of famine. You see that. And he's building also, he's really, I think, increasing the faith of Elijah, also of the widow and her son, and those that read of this testimony too, all of us, right? And uh, you, you read that. Later on, um, the widow's son is, is, um, dies, and he's raised up again by Elijah, great, really one of the, the resurrections of the Bible that takes place. Um, more of that goes on, of course. Uh, more, uh, eventually Elijah prays, and the rain returns, and the famine is broken uh, in all of that. The next famine is in the life of Elisha. Now, a little hint, some of you probably already know this, but if you always want to remember which prophet came first, there's Elijah and Elisha. And J becomes before S, right? So I always remember it that way. So if you want to remember which prophet's where, it's Elijah and then Elisha, who is coming. And Elisha, who's in 2 Kings, he's the successor and, uh, of, the, of uh, Elijah, there's three famines that are mentioned in that time. The first one, 2 Kings chapter 4. And this was a time of famine. It says, uh, verse 38, chapter 4 of 2 Kings, And Elisha returned to Gilgal, and there was a famine in the land. Now the sons of the prophets were sitting before him, and he said to his servants, Put on the large pot and boil stew for the sons of the prophets. And so... They go out and they gather some herbs and they put this stew together. Uh, only one thing is while they were gathering herbs, they got something poisonous, some vine or something that was poisonous, and they put it in the stew. And as soon as they begin to eat it, somebody takes sick and they realize there's death in the stew. <laughs> and the miracle of Elijah, Elisha, excuse me, goes and he sprinkles flour in there and he, whatever he did, uh, and God used it, and he, the, the stew is no longer deadly. And they were able to consume it. And again, showing how God would provide for his people during that time uh, when there was a famine going on. And even when they make mistakes in their gathering of the right herbs and whatnot. Um, Let me move on here. The next one. Verse uh, 2 Kings chapter 6. And this, this the two long chapters here, six and seven, they go together. And I'm just going to go there in my scriptures. It's easier to do that and follow it than online sometimes. Second Kings 6, you have um, Ben-Hadad besieging Samaria. And what happens is the Syrians had gathered around the city of Samaria and besieged it. And there was famine in the city. And you read of it in verse 25 there. It says, And there was a great famine in Samaria. Indeed, they besieged it until a donkey's head was sold for eight shekels of silver. I don't know how much meat is in a donkey's head, uh, but that's what they were selling, whatever they could eat. you know. And you can imagine taking a, a donkey's head, boiling it off, and trying to find what was left and, and eat it. I mean, that's pretty rough times. And then it says, in one-fourth of a cab of dove's droppings for five shekels of silver. And I'm not sure if they consumed the dove droppings, which is not something I want to eat by any means, or they used it for burning to boil water. I'm not sure. I, I don't, it, it's, it's hard to say. But in a time of famine, when there's nothing to eat, you will eat whatever you can eat. And 
whatever got digested through the bird and didn't get fully digested, if there was some nutritional value to it, apparently they, they were doing, maybe doing that as well. So um, it's a bad time. And we read a little bit about what's going on in that. And in the process of this, God does a mighty miracle. And he shows the Syrian army. Actually, he, it was a miracle. of they, they thought they were getting invaded by a bigger army. And it was just God doing it. And so the Syrian army, in the midst of a feast and everything else, they pack up and leave. And here's Samaria... In the city, people are starving to death, and they're besieged. They think they're besieged, and they don't realize the Syrian army has left. And there's these four lepers. They didn't get to live in the city, because if you were a leper, you were outside the city, and nobody wanted you. Even the enemy didn't want you, because nobody wanted to get leprosy. And chapter 7 opens up, And it says this, Then Elijah said, Hear the word of the Lord, thus says the Lord, Tomorrow about the time of Sia, a fine flour shall be sold for a shekel, and two Sias of barley for a shekel at the gate of Samaria. He says, By tomorrow the famine is broken. So an officer on whose hand the king leaned answered the man of God and said, Look, if the Lord would make windows in heaven, could this thing be? And he said, in fact, you shall see it with your eyes, but you shall not eat it, eat of it. Now, there were four leprous men at the entrance of the gate, and they said to one another, why are we sitting here until we die? Pretty miserable bunch, you know. I mean, they're going to die because they're lepers, a miserable death. And they're sitting outside the city in, in, in this gate, because they weren't allowed in the city. And they said, we got a plan. <laughs> If we say we will enter the city, the famine is in the city, and we shall die there. They can't. Uh, They weren't to dwell there anyways. And if we sit here, we die also. Now therefore come, let us surrender to the army of the Syrians, and if they keep us alive, we shall live, and if they kill us, we shall only die. tell you, what a hopeful bunch, huh? I mean, these aren't the people you want to go to for comfort, all right? You just want to give up. They had. And they rose at twilight to go to the camp of the Syrians. And when they had come to the outskirts of the Syrian camp, to their surprise, no one was there. For the Lord had caused the army of the Syrians to hear the noise of chariots and the noise of horses and the noise of great arm, a great army. That's the host of heaven. And God pulls back the veil enough for them to hear this great army about them in the middle of the night. And it says this, look, they said one to another, look, the king of Israel has hired against us the kings of the Hittites and the kings of the Egyptians to attack us. Therefore they arose and fled at twilight and left the camp intact, their tents, their horses, their donkeys, and they fled for their lives. And when these lepers came to the outskirts of the camp, they went into one tent and ate and drank and carried from it silver and gold and clothing and went and hid them and Then they came back and entered another tent and carried some from there also and went and hid it. Then they said to one another, we are not doing right. This day is a day of good news. And we remain silent. If we wait until morning light, some punishment will come upon us. Now therefore come, let us go and tell the king's household. Wow. 
So God takes these four leprous men in a time of famine and he uses them to deliver a city with the good news, right? It was the message. They couldn't do anything in their own strength. And there's a beautiful picture there of the, uh, I think, the missionary message, isn't it? We, we can go out and, you know, go out and, and try to make some money and then hide it somewhere in the bank or hide it in the, the vault somewhere or in the ground or whatever. We can do whatever, but we, we don't do well when that's our life. We live for self. These guys came to the conclusion. They realized, you know what? We have this food. We have all this wealth, all of that. And we do not do the right thing if we just sit here and don't tell the king's household. And thankfully they did. They go back. And the famine is broken. And sure enough, just as Elisha had said prophetically, that all of a sudden hit all the food they needed for that time. Then there's a third famine. Um, that's Second Kings 8. And in that one, it's a resulting in a woman and a servant and a king knowing that there was still a prophet in Israel. And it's, uh, we'll read the six verses here. Then Elisha spoke to the woman whose son he had restored to life, saying, Arise and go, and you and your household, and stay wherever you can, for the Lord has called for a famine, and furthermore, it will come upon the land for seven years. So the woman arose and did according to the saying of the man of God, and she went with her household and dwelt in the land of the Philistines seven years. And it came to pass at the end of seven years that the woman returned from the land of the Philistines And she went to make an appeal to the king for her house and for her land. Then the king talked with Gehazi, the servant of the man of God, saying, Tell me, please, all the great things Elisha has done. Now it happened, as he was telling the king how he had restored the dead to life, that there was the woman whose son he had restored to life, appealing to the king for her house and for her land. It just happened that both were there at the same time, right? And Gehazi said, My lord, O king, this is the woman, and this is her son, whom Elisha restored to life. And when the king asked the woman, she told him. So the king appointed a certain officer for her, saying, Restore all that was hers and all the proceeds of the field from the day that she left the land until now. Wow. Again, time of famine. It was a terrible thing for a widow, but God used it. And brought her back and gave her more. You know, what a what an opportunity. Uh, famine in, in Jerusalem. That's the next one, and that's Second Kings twenty five. At the time of Jeremiah, and the time of Nebuchadnezzar, and Nebuchadnezzar besieges Jerusalem, and it gives a time date stamp here in Second Kings. So the city was besieged until the eleventh year of King Zedekiah, and. If you want to read the commentary of what took place in that time, you can read Jeremiah. And in Jeremiah 14, it talks about that. Um, The word of the Lord that came to Jeremiah concerning the drought. Judah mourns and her gates languish. Her people lament on the ground and the cry of Jerusalem goes up. Her nobles send their servants for water. They come to the cisterns, they find no water. They return with their vessels empty. They are ashamed and confounded and cover their heads. Because of the ground that is dismayed, since there is no rain on the land, the farmers are ashamed, they cover their heads. Even the doe in the field forsakes her newborn fawn because there is no grass. The wild donkeys stand on the bare heights, their 
pant, they pant for air like jackals. Their eyes fail because there is no vegetation. Though our iniquities testify against us, act, O Lord, for your namesake, for our backslidings are many. We have sinned against you. O oh, you hope of Israel, its savior in a time of trouble. Why should you be like a stranger in the land, like a traveler who turns aside to tarry for a night? And that chapter is a lament of, of uh, Jeremiah for the backslidden condition of his people. This was a famine directly associated with their their uh, idolatry and um, their disobedience. And God had sent Nebuchadnezzar there to besiege the city. And it sounds like the weather was bad too. It was a drought. They didn't even have water. Wow. And pretty rough times that were going on. Uh, and eventually they were led away in captivity, weren't they? And uh, then would come back 70 years later uh, and would be restored in that. And there you come to the time of Nehemiah. And in Nehemiah chapter 5, there is another famine. We're getting down near the end here. Um, Nehemiah chapter 5, it says, There were also some who said, We have mortgaged our lands and vineyards and houses that we might buy grain because of the famine. There were also those who said, We have borrowed money for the king's tax on our lands and vineyards. Yet now our flesh is as the flesh of our brethren, our children as their children, and indeed we are forcing our sons and our daughters to be slaves. And some of our daughters have been brought into slavery. It is not in our power to redeem them. For our other men have, have, other men have our lands and vineyards. And I became very angry when I heard their outcry in these words. After serious thought, I rebuked the nobles and the rulers and said to them, each of you is exacting usury from his brother. So I called a great assembly against them. And I said to them, according to our ability, we have redeemed our Jewish brethren who were sold to the nations. Now indeed, will you even sell your brethren? Which was against the Mosaic law. Or should they be sold to us? Then they were silenced and found nothing to say. Then I said... What you are doing is not good. Should you not walk in the fear of our God because of the reproach of the nations, our enemies? I also, with my brethren and my servants, am lending them money and grain. Please let us stop this usury. Restore now to them, even this day, their lands, their vineyards, their olive groves, and their houses, also a hundredth of the money and the grain, and new wine and the oil that you have charged them. And so they said... We will restore it and will require nothing from them. And we will do as you say. And then I called the priests and required an oath from them that they would do according to this promise. Then I shook out the fold of my garment and said, So may God shake out each man from this, his house and from his property who does not perform this promise. Even thus may he be shaken out and emptied. And look at it. This is the great reaction. And all the assembly said, Amen. And praise the Lord. And then the people did according to this promise. So you have Nehemiah standing up. It's a terrible time. People are, Jews are selling each other into slavery, basically, and taking each other's land and all that. And they weren't to do that. And Nehemiah rebukes them in accordance with the word of God. And they repent and they, they restore. And really, you see a revival here in a time of famine. And I would just say this, that 
Sometimes that, that, those famines bring us to a point where spiritually we understand our own condition before God. And there are spiritual famines. Um, another one that's not in his list is, is, is um, a famine for the knowledge of the word of God. Hosea chapter 4 verse 6 says, um, My people perish for lack of knowledge, I believe, uh, in the version there. And when, when you think about that, there's, there can be a famine for the knowledge of God. And that causes people to perish also, right? All right, moving along. We've got four minutes here. And the New Testament, we have Acts chapter 11 is a famine that occurs. Acts chapter 11, now then one of them named Agabus stood up and showed by the spirit that there was going to be a great famine throughout all the world. Which also happened in the days of Claudius Caesar. And then the disciples, each according to his ability, determined to send relief to the brethren dwelling in Judea. This they also did, and sent it to the elders by the hands of Barnabas and Saul. So here you see where the church and Christians get involved in the relief effort to provide relief back to the the land of Judea and the Christians that were there, and they bring relief. And so you have borne out in this early portion of really uh, uh, church history, you know, Christians doing that whole aspect of charitable giving to those in need and so you see that used in a time of famine and i would just say that that in bleak or lean times and bleak times and dark times and all that that's when christians should shine the most right and it gives us more opportunity to do that um you just pick up some biographies sometime and and read things like like george Mueller's life or, or whatever when george Mueller was was building orphanages and and literally eventually feeding tens of thousands of orphans that came through those orphanages, it was not in a great time of prosperity in England. Um, It it was actually a time where there was great turmoil and a lot of poverty and a lot of things, so much so that people had given up their children, you know. And yet God honored that, and they just over and over again, he provided and uh, made some really neat things happen, you know. So, I mean, there's one example. There's many examples like that. Um, the last famine in the Bible that I could find and that is mentioned is in the book of Revelation. And this is yet future. And in one of the judgments, in Revelation 6, it says, When he opened the third seal, I heard the third living creature say, Come and see. So I looked, and behold, a black horse, and he who sat on it had a pair of scales in his hand. Scales are the the picture of trading, right? You know, you weigh out things in the balance. If you went to the merchant and you want so much grain, it was weighed out, all of that. But look what it says. And I heard a voice in the midst of the four living creatures saying, a quart of wheat for a denarius and three quarts of barley for a denarius and do not harm the oil and the wine. Um, wheat and, and barley had gone right through the roof. A denarius was a day's wage. So just for a serving of wheat and a serving of barley, you would work an entire day during that time. So it's going to be a hard time. I, I know we think we have it bad now with inflation and everything going crazy. And I, I feel that way sometimes. I go look at the supermarket and you got a little grocery bag and it comes out to be like $70. And you're like, what happened, you know? And, and, and I look at that stuff and yet there's coming a day when you won't be able to buy a bowl of oatmeal during that tribulation, I say you, if you're a believer, you're not going to be there. But those that 
are here. Um, and by the way, it'd be a great discussion to witness to people. You know, I have had numerous times in the last months and year or so um, where somebody has said, oh, man, if it gets any worse, I don't know what I'm going to do. You know, things like that. Or they make some comment on the fly. And here's a, here's a thought. Instead of just chasing down the president and saying, oh, it's his fault or his fault or their fault or whatever, say, hey, you know what? There's coming a worse time. And a time that isn't going to be even this bad. It's going to be a lot worse. And this is what the Bible says about it. And, but you don't have to be there. You know, Jesus has promised to save us from the wrath to come. And uh, if you'll flee to Jesus, uh, you'll, you'll be fine, you know, in that. We'll be experiencing the marriage supper of the Lamb. When he opened the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the fourth living creature saying, Come and see. So I looked, and behold, a pale horse, and the name of him who sat on it was Death, and Hades followed him, and power was given to them over a fourth of the earth to kill with a sword, and with hunger, with death, and by the beasts of the earth, and it doesn't get any better. What follows famine is death. And again, that will be God's righteous judgment poured out upon earth in, in a time of great rejection that will be going on and will have been going on. Um, and again, we can be thankful for the deliverance that Christ offers now, right? Famines. Lots of different things in the Bible we can learn from them. Lord, we are grateful. Commit this to you tonight. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.